Hello and welcome to our podcast. You're so welcome wherever you're listening to this today. We're joined by a very special guest today, Glenn. Would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about yourself and yeah, why you're here in beautiful Belfast. Beautiful Belfast. I'm Glenn. I'm Glenn Scrivener. I'm married to Emma. We've got Ruby and JJ. I live on the south coast of England. I work for Speak Life, which is an evangelistic ministry. And I'm here in Belfast to help with human Belfast. Um, not vegetable Belfast or mineral <laughs> Belfast, but human Belfast. And uh, we are doing a student outreach with lots of different universities together, combining to bring the good news of Jesus to students and beyond in Belfast. That's so a lot of fun. Oh, incredible. That was a beautiful introduction, Glenn, was it? as well. Okay. I, I, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> You're a real encourager, Lizzie. <laughs> and if you hear who I am, I'm, I'm Lizzie. I work as a staff worker in Belfast um, with the lovely Jordanstown and Ulster Belfast, who are a group of art students, very creative, forever pushing my science brain to its limits at times, but they're great. And I'm also joined by Paddy. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, hello everybody. I'm Paddy. Um, I'm a relay worker with TUI in Belfast. And yeah, I'm not, not quite sure why I'm co-hosting this one, but I'm, <laughs> I'm jumping on perhaps to just ask the, the stupid questions um, <laughs> that, that come to mind throughout. There are no stupid questions, Pat. No <laughs> There'll be plenty of stupid answers, but we'll see. <laughs> no, definitely. And Glenn, it really is just such a joy to have you with us, especially for Human this week. And mm. it's been a wonderful opportunity already. Last night you were sharing a little bit on hypocrisy. I wonder, would you even just share a little bit about how you, yeah, even sharing on that last night and how that's been going? And yeah, I mean, interestingly, the the talk title was about hypocrisy in the church, but I think what the last you know, couple of weeks, last seven, eight weeks, as the Sue Gray report and, and uh, parties at number 10 have, have been in the headlines, it's really brought home how hypocrisy, like Christians don't own the trademark on hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. It's not simply a Christian problem or a religious problem. It's a human problem. And so it was great to be able to address it as a, a human problem um, for which Jesus has the diagnosis and the healing. And, and the diagnosis is that we're all mask wearers. We're, we're whitewashed tombs. We do everything to be seen by others. We don't practice what we preach. That's all from Matthew chapter 23, all where Jesus kind of coins the phrase hypocrite, which up until Jesus' use of it just meant a masked actor. He was just calling people masked actors. But then the people he calls masked actors are the holiest looking people on planet Earth. Um, so it's absolutely blistering and shocking and revolutionary. Um, and it's caught on. And now we, we hate hypocrisy. And now we, we hate it when our rulers don't live by the rules that they give to us. We hate double standards and all the sorts of things that are just commonplace in every culture that has not been shaped by Christianity. And so trying to get people to, to think that our, our moral intuition about hypocrisy has been formed by Jesus Christ, whether you're a Christian or not. Your outrage at party gate is Christian outrage. But then, you know, as you point the finger at other hypocrites, what about the three pointing back at us? Where is the healing to be found? And, and again, I think uniquely Jesus gives healing for hypocrisy because he's the one who looks beneath the mask, sees the ugliness and loves us anyway. Mm. And I think only when we have that security are we able to kind of drop the mask and stop acting, stop performing and, and maybe find some healing. Not, not, uh, not a full cure in this life, but, but healing for hypocrisy. So that's, that's the direction I took the talk. Great. So I guess um, hypocrisy is kind of one example of of this kind of Christian worldview um, shaping the way that we think today. But there are there are loads of other examples of that. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I guess 
yeah, more, more broadly, kind of what do you think the most other obvious examples are of that in our in our culture and kind of how can we point that out or, or convince people of that who don't even who, who wouldn't even understand that that is where their beliefs come from? Everything, like literally everything. So um, I'm working on a book at the moment um, called The Air We Breathe. And you get the idea from that title that um, the moral assumptions and intuitions and beliefs that we all hold are the air that we breathe and they've come specifically from jesus and from his revolution and and so you know in in my book i, I go through seven different values but i, I could have uh, could have done many more including hypocrisy but um I, I go through equality compassion consent enlightenment science freedom and progress as these baked in ideas that we nowadays feel are totally obvious and natural and universal. But when you study ancient cultures like pre the Christian revolution, and when you study cultures around the world today, you recognize that they are weird values. And for a long time, people have been talking about how weird the West is. And it's an acronym that stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. If you're listening to this podcast, you perhaps live in a society that is Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. You're weird. And I'm weird. And in particular, the weirdness of the West traces back to its roots in Jesus and in the church. Um, and it's not just Christians that have been saying this. There are all sorts of people like Joseph Henrik who coined the phrase um, weird, not a Christian. Larry Seidentop, who talks about how our Western ideas of, of uh, equality and individualism come entirely from the Jesus Revolution. Tom Holland, a historian, a uh, big whopping book called Dominion. Um, tracing all this kind of stuff out. And so I, I think it really helps us because all of our friends, their, um, their critiques of Christianity are Christian critiques. Mm -hmm. And they are, totally, um, they are totally dependent on a whole bunch of assumptions that make no sense without Jesus Christ. So for instance, last night uh, during the uh, Q&A, um, somebody raised an issue about Old Testament, um, the celebration of murder or killing in the Old Testament. And I think they were referring to Old Testament wars and that sort of thing. And, and you know, I think that's a, that's a common complaint that people have against Christians. Have you not read the Old Testament? Have you not seen that there is, you know, there are people taking up swords in the name of God? Isn't that outrageous? Well, at that stage, you want to ask, why is that outrageous? By what standard is that outrageous? Um, because I don't think I'm saying anything that, for instance, a, a Muslim friend would disagree with. Um, Muhammad was a glorious warrior who drew the sword in the name of Allah and advanced the kingdom of Islam through violence, unapologetically did that. And he is what most human civilizations are like. That's how Genghis Khan rules. That's how Alexander the Great rules. That's how Julius Caesar rules. It ought never to be how the people of Jesus Christ rule. Because he says, put away your sword, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and, and lots of stuff like that. And so if we feel like Old Testament Israel should have put away the sword, it's only Jesus that has taught us that. Now I think you can go back to the Old Testament and you and you can make a case for the just wars that, that there were in the book of Joshua. But what I really want to do is press into the the intuition that we feel that oh the 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 kingdom should never advance via violence. And yet biologically and historically that is the only way any kingdoms have ever advanced apart from the Christian revolution. 
we've got it wrong many times. You can mention crusades and the Inquisition and all sorts of stuff. Um, but when Christians have done that, they have been hypocritical to their own standards. Um, to, to wage war by conquest in the name of any other ideology kind of makes sense. To do it in the name of Jesus has happened many times. It's just that it's always outrageous when it's in the name of the one who bore the violence rather than dishing it out. So that's just an, an example of, of how every critique of the Christian faith that we, that we experience and that we might think of ourselves is born of, of deeply Christian assumptions. And that's such an interesting and important thing to think about, Glenn, as well, because I think sometimes when we're engaging with our friends or thinking about the questions that they have, we think that they're coming from a worldview that's completely as aside from Christianity that hasn't been shaped by so much. So it's right. so important to think about actually where we've come from, that yeah. no one's a blank slate as well when they, they come with their questions that they're totally. shaped by so much. And your friends will might well think of themselves, I'm not a person of faith. And they, they, might, they might say, I'm more of a person of science or I'm more of a thinker, I'm more of a rational person or, 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 or whatever. I've, I've got a friend who wrote a letter to me that I, I'll never forget. She said, um, of course you realize I could never be a person of faith. And that's always stuck with me because I've, I've, I've just sort of thought, why, why of course would I know that she could never be a person of faith? And it's kind of this, I think lots of people have this idea. There are those who are able to take a leap of faith. They've got some kind of midichlorians in their blood or something. They've got that the, there is some substance within them that they were born with. It's a genetic, you know, and maybe maybe it's a happy, you know, genetic freak thing, or maybe it's a very unhappy genetic freak thing. But some people are born with faith. Some people aren't. And some people are able to make a leap of faith. I just live at ground zero and I just walk along just going by what I can rationally prove. Um, and, and what's really helpful is to say, um, you are not walking at ground level. You are not living by science and reason because you believe that we all have an inherent dignity. You believe that humans are equal. You believe in human rights. You believe in consents. You, you believe in spreading your ideas by persuasion and never by violence. You, you agree to all these sorts of things that can never be proved. Like none, none of those things are the results of a scientific experiment or, or a you know, logical deduction. None of, like that is, those are faith positions, honestly. Those are totally faith positions. And it's like history has taken a great leap of faith already and we've been carried along with it. And your friend who believes in human rights and equality and dignity and that you know, society should be judged by how it treats its weakest members and all this kind of stuff, that, that is not scientifically demonstrable at all. That's the, and lots of people have thought all those beliefs, which they are, are nuts. So your friend is a person of faith already. It's just that they happen to be midair and their feet are kind of dangling like Wile E. Coyote kind of running off the, end of the <laughs> uh, off the edge of the cliff. They are midair believing all kinds of nonsense that has no foundation apart from Jesus. So I, what I say to my friends who say, you know, I could never take a leap of faith is that you're already midair. What you really need is not to leap. You need some ground beneath your feet. And only Jesus, only his teachings, only, only the Jesus revolution will actually explain to you the beliefs that you already have. So I, and I, I found it in my own experience that just completely transforms a conversation, not into how do I get my friend to believe stuff? 
because your friend is a believer in all sorts of nonsense. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is nonsense if Jesus is, is, did not rise from the dead. And, and that changes the conversation totally. Now, now it's not, how do I encourage my friend to leap? It's now, how do I give them ground beneath their feet? And I think that sort of cartoonish idea of running on air before falling down, like mm. without kind of making you, <laughs> um, forcing you to be a prophet or something like, yeah. do you think that means that as the foundations become less and less obvious in society, like things will get pretty chaotic and that will kind of aid this argument in some ways? Yeah. Um, and do you think we're already seeing that in some ways and maybe some examples? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there was a case in 2019, um, David Macarath was a, uh, is a Christian GP who in an interview for a job with the NHS was given a scenario um, about um, would he use the pronouns of you know, someone who came to him and he said, well, if there's a six foot bearded person opposite me, um, I would probably just call them him. Um, and he did not get the job um, and then he um, went to like a tribunal to, to figure out whether that's discrimination against him and his Christian views. And what we saw there is kind of the clash between trans rights and religious liberty, right? And, and here is David Macarath wanting to stand on Genesis 1, and he mentions Genesis 1 many times in the case, and God made them male and female. Um, and so this, um, this kind of went to court, and the judge ruled against Macarath, and he said, um, um, you cannot stand on Genesis 1 in today's modern secular society. It had, that has no place in a modern, inclusive, equal society, which very much brings to mind the vision of someone soaring off the branch of the tree that they're sitting on. For Western culture to say, in the name of equality and inclusion, <laughs> we need to get rid of Genesis 1, where actually the image of God that is in male and female is absolutely the foundation of the inclusion and the equality and diversity and all those wonderful buzzwords that we like. Um, totally founded on Genesis 1. Um, and so what we're seeing is, is a society that it, it, at many points is actively working to run away from the foundations on which it is founded. And we're seeing a society that has abstracted the values we've taken from the Christian story. We've ditched the story. We've only taken the morals. And detached from the Christian story, those morals kind of get twisted and perverted. So for instance, things like um, Jesus has taught us that there is dignity in the victims. He was the great victim on the cross who nevertheless triumphed through his death. And he was, he was weak and marginalized and excluded. And yet through his sacrifice, um, was, was triumphed and, and the, vic the victim became victor. And, and we have learnt through Jesus and his revolution to prize the victim and to mm -hmm. prize the weak and the marginalized and the poor and those who are outside. Um, but now divorced from Jesus and his story, we just have um, victims are to be prized and valued and honor, honored. And, and sociologists are now talking about things like um, competitive victimhood, where now, the goal is not so much to be able to help victims. The goal is to be the victim and to claim victimhood and to claim victimhood before you claim victimhood because that now, that has cachet. The only reason it has cachet is because of Jesus. 
But integrated into the Jesus story, the victim has value such that we care for the victim in bonds of love. And so re really, we've, we've twisted that now. And there are, all sorts of, there are all sorts of examples in which now the values that we have are divorced from a story that's all about forgiveness, actually, and a story that's all about grace and mercy to those who get it wrong. We've ditched that part of it. Mm. We've kept a whole bunch of moral values, and now we're just shouting at each other with these moral values. You know, the culture wars are just people hurling Bible verses at each other. We've just forgotten the references. So th there are all sorts of very um, unpleasant uh, consequences to, to walking away from this story. But the church has been here many, many times before. You know, the, the success of the church, even in the West, ebbs and flows and, and does it usually in that order. Usually there's an ebb and then there's a flow. The tide is out at the moment, but, um, but history would tell us and the scriptures would tell us that the, the tide comes back in again. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Sort of it's, it seems enormously frustrating because... Um, yeah, sort of half half a worldview, I guess, doesn't make doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Um, yeah, Spurgeon had a great line about that. He, he's just talking about individuals. He said, um, uh, "the the semi Christian is the saddest person in the world." You know, because they they get the law and not the grace. You know, they 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 get the example of Jesus and not his salvation. And I think that's what we've got. We've got we've got a culture that is semi Christian, and we're more miserable for it. Mm -hmm. I suppose, Glenn, when we're thinking about that and we're thinking about how we, we're having these conversations with the friends where this stuff is coming up and we see that that sort of twisted worldview and how do we, oh, have you got any advice even how we then, I suppose, show them actually where your foundation is in and mm. that it is maybe in that Christian worldview and mm. has its roots there and also then from there point them to Jesus who does bring us life and joy and freedom. I think it really... Uh, it really sets you up to actually say to people, let's go back to the sources and let's investigate the sources. You know, I was just very aware last night kind of reading Matthew 23, the power of Jesus's woes to the Pharisees. Um, they, they hit with a real freshness when you're kind of like, you know, this, this is the sort of the origin of, you know, if you trace back the, the, the intuitions that you have, this is kind of the explosion where it came from, and it is explosive. And when you introduce people to the, the scriptures which explain them and explain their world, I think, I think it's massively, it massively sort of brings aha moments for people. And so, I mean, so one really basic thing is, is just saying, you know, have you ever read a gospel since becoming an adult? Have you ever, ever read one of these, you know, biographies of Jesus? And what's fascinating about that is... Um, we, we get so used to talking at the level of values and at the level of, um, you know, e even as people critique the church, they're using values. You know, this value, this, uh, this value means that you guys are, you know, you, you guys are un unequal or not compassionate or, you know. So people live in the realm of values. What they really need is a person above and beyond the values. Mm -hmm. Because all these values are very personal actually they're, they're all about persons they're about human value so it's it's weird to believe in a morality that's ultimately impersonal and it makes a lot of sense to introduce people to the person who embodies these values and a person who can forgive you when you fail at these values 
so just getting people into the scriptures and just just seeing the towering personality of Jesus his stooping love and they they get to see not the moral to the story like imagine kind of reading Aesop's fables but you don't read any of the fables you just read the punchline you know that that's what people are living on mm-hmm. and just being able to say let's let's enter the story this is because this this is grounded in a person, a person who is alive, a person who you can know. I think, I think that's thrilling for people who just have the anemic, thin gruel of Christian-ish values when they could have Christ. And we see Jesus then when we see him coming to us clothed in his Gospels. Yes. And I suppose even how he does bring life to all of these twisted values that we've got and make sense of the mess of them. Right. Because yeah, it's one thing saying, you know, I believe we should prize the weak and the marginalized it's another thing to actually see jesus descend all the way to the cross and see how the gospel writers you know speak of him being the the subject of an unjust trial and betrayed by a close friend and and struck and the 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 absolute injustice of it all um suddenly becomes personal and and to keep going and, and he keeps going he keeps going down 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 into all that for me oh my goodness it just it just blows an abstract morality out of the water just 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 to see the the person of jesus so continually bring people back to that and um forgive me this might be one of the stupid questions that i mentioned at the start (laughs) Um, so so let me know if that's the case but i think an apologetic kind of idea that i often maybe would have used with friends in the past is kind of the idea that we have a morality is kind of god-given conscience Mm. um and I guess, how does that God-given conscience idea tie up with the kind of historical Jesus has shaped our morality idea? Brilliant question. That's a very, very good question. Um, and I, I think it's not, it's not as though consciences, which um, are God-given, but it's not as though consciences cannot err and cannot be totally shaped by my behavior. You can sear your own conscience. Your culture can also sear your own conscience, um, and when you read the, when you read like the the very first manual of um, uh, gynecology and obstetrics, basically, basically um, sort of written by a midwife, um, the first the first section of it, um, written around about the year dot, written around about two thousand years ago, um, you know, one of the first prominent sections is. Um, uh, on discerning the offspring that are worth rearing. That's, that's one of the first things you want to do. If you're delivering a baby, you, you need to discern whether this baby should live or die. And it's incredibly cold and calculating, and it's just, well, you know, if they respond in this way, if they don't respond in that way, you expose them, which is to put them on the rubbish heap, to drown them, to chuck them down a well. Um, of course, of course. you And, and you, you find, you know, ancient letters from a soldier back to his... Um, wife saying you know glad to hear that you're pregnant obviously if it's a girl kill it if it's a boy um i'll be back by the spring and 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 oh and by the way this happened and this happened and please sell this piece of land and just just totally commonplace Mm -hmm. now are we to think that there is really a a kind of there is a conscience to that person saying if it's a girl kill it but consciences individually and corporately and historically can be suppressed, can be seared, can be, um, can be broken. Um, and it's, it's not as though that conscience within 
that soldier is always pointed to, to true north and they're aware on a, on a quite conscious level of how wicked that is, then I don't think they are. Like, um, so I think we, have, we need to have a more biblical and nuanced view of what a conscience is because when you look at people around the world today or down through history, um, they were very commonly doing things um, that are wrong. I mean, all of that is wrong. But as problems to that society, they were totally invisible. And when Christians came and explained to them, you know, you know, you shouldn't expose infants. All the Romans would be like, literally every culture does this. What are you talking about? Similar to how, you know, when Moses goes to, to Pharaoh, he's like, you got to let my people go. Why? Because Yahweh says, who's Yahweh? Right, <laughs> it's like I've heard of Osiris and I've heard of Ra and I've, I've, I've heard of Horus and like who's Yahweh? And and then Moses is like you'll see, you know, and then you will know that I am the Lord. And it, it wasn't a sense of Moses going to to Pharaoh and saying, you know, you know by discerning the inner light within who the real God is and that you are and that you are. Um, angering Yahweh, he, he doesn't say. He doesn't say, "Look within," because you you know that you're going against Yahweh. Um, he does say, "You will see who Yahweh is, and he is the he is the real Lord, and all those others are fakes." But yeah, I, I think we need to. I, I don't think it's the case that Pharaoh has access to a kind of a, a constantly present true North within him. Um, I don't think I don't think conscience works exactly like that. Consciences need to be informed by Christ and by His Scriptures. Awesome. Um, thanks a lot, Glenn. We've, we've discussed so much. We've almost discussed the the whole of kind of Western Human civilization. <laughs> yes. Um, so I guess like trying to bring it into land a little bit. Um, maybe we've already touched on some of this, but what can we kind of as student leaders do um, to equip our students better in this area and to kind of yeah help them communicate these ideas more effectively um, and yeah you, you may have touched on some of this already but you mean beyond buying my book perhaps he was waiting perhaps slightly beyond that <laughs> like children need shoes come on <laughs> uh, yeah I, I just think be, be, be attentive to your own moral intuitions you know e even as you you know read the news or aware of different cultural trends and hashtags and why why are we thinking in this way? Why are we thinking in that way? I think it's something that Christians are, are generally pretty good at. I think I think we tend to we, we realize that everybody's coming from somewhere, no one is a neutral, we are all we all have presuppositions, we all have moral assumptions and spiritual assumptions and, and existential assumptions about what, what life is, is really about. So be, just be really attentive to um, what are the values that are being espoused um, in the media what are the what are the values that my friends uh, are, are having and I, and I think maybe, maybe one thing is is see what you can celebrate about your friends critique of Christianity they might say you know the church is is not inclusive of the LGBT community um, and ordinarily we just we have oh here's my answer um, but may maybe we just need to say, um, cool, where, where, where does that idea of inclusion, diversity come from? And that, that 
desire to protect and to honor minorities that's a really precious thing where do you think that comes from and, and where's that impetus and and why um and i i think that might might lead to some more some more fruitful conversations definitely glenn this has been such a joy to have hmm. you um come share on our our podcast this morning and yeah you can buy glenn's book in, in june was that right? Is it June? There will be or? physical copies in May. I think you'll be able to get the ebook pretty soon. So, um, yeah, on the Good Book website, Good Book Company website, um, you can pre order now. Great. Well, there we go. You can pre order now, guys. Make sure you get on that. <laughs> um, but, Glenn, genuinely, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And, yeah, and we're going to be praying for you the rest of the week. And we're excited to hear more. Thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah. And thank you for all you guys listening. And, yeah, we'll chat to you soon. Bye.